This is my copy of Out of the Blue, a multi-platinum selling double album by the Electric Light Orchestra released in October of 1977. Now to put that in context, the movie Star Wars came out in May of the same year. NASA launched the Voyager probe in September and Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out in November. So by the time I got a copy of this record for my 12th birthday that December, I had already spent seven straight months masturbating over spaceships. <laughs> you would probably remember Turn to Stone, Sweet Talking Woman, Mr. Blue Sky, but to me the entire 17 song collection was completely transportive. Every track was written, produced, and sung by my personal music god, Jeff Lynne, the multi-instrumentally talented Willy Wonka of pop music, a reclusive studio rat who hardly ever plays live and rarely leaves the Bel Air home where he's crafted unforgettable ear candy for dozens of artists, Tom Petty, Roy Orbison, the Traveling Wilburys, even those posthumous John Lennon tunes by the Beatles. In fact, Lennon once paid Lynne the ultimate compliment by saying that ELO picked up where the Beatles left off. But maybe the real reason Out of the Blue took me away as a kid so much was because I heard it at a time when I desperately needed it. I was a 12-year-old boy growing up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who was not only starting to wonder what else was out there, but was also starting to realize one of my parents drank way too much. So by closing my door, turning off the lights, basking in the stereophonic sauna of Lynn's musical masterpiece, I could repeatedly launch myself to the furthest edges of the pre-adolescent galaxy without having to ever worry about what was actually happening in my own world. And for the record, I never outgrew this record. That's why in 2014, when word got out that Jeff Lynne's ELO would be headlining the BBC2 Radio Festival at Hyde Park, playing their first live show in 28 years, I knew I had to go. <laughs> so my wife and I took a red eye from LA to London for 36 hours just to be a part of this crowd. And because nobody understands my inner child quite like Nancy, she immediately called on every single Hollywood connection we had to see if she could somehow get us backstage. Long story short, through the generosity and kindness of a friend, she managed to do just that. So we got these fancy purple wristbands that led us into a VIP tent area. And that access alone was super cool. For example, I got to eat cheese and crackers with Chrissy Hind of The Pretenders. <laughs> And I scored a dirty look from Debbie Harry of Blondie. I'm not sure why she gave me a dirty look, really, aside from the obvious fact that I clearly had no business eating cheese and crackers with Chrissy Hind. But it wasn't until we were out in the crowd enjoying the sunshine and a set by one of the opening acts that I noticed the secret VIP riser at stage left tucked just behind the wall of speakers, completely empty and mere inches from the stage where the artist performed. And that's where I knew I had to be when ELO played. So we definitely made it around the backside of the stage until I could finally spot this small set of aluminum stairs that obviously led to the riser. And then we made it up them just in time to watch Blondie play their entire set. Now, the vantage point from that riser was truly incredible. Not only did we feel like we were on stage with the band, because we were, <clears throat> but we could also gaze out upon the massive crowds filling Hyde Park. And for the first time in my life, I could fully understand why rock stars never want to stop being rock stars. 
ELO was up after Blondie, so we moved to the front rail, picking two prime seats, because I wasn't going anywhere until that spaceship finally landed. The crew swiftly began clearing Blondie's gear and rolling the headliner's instruments into place, until this imposing roadie, who I'll call Jarvis, suddenly spotted me from the stage and frowned. Actually, it wasn't me he noticed so much as my shoes. These shoes. Literally the same ugly pair of day-glow yellow sneakers that I had just bought earlier that day at the London Nike store in the obnoxious American section. <laughs> Jarvis trudged up the back stairs and in a thick, I swear to God, Pirates of the Caribbean accent said, you folks need something? No, we assured him, we're just waiting for ELO. Mm. Might if I take a look at your wrist patents? We proudly displayed these delicate strips of purple paper that had done so much for us all day, and yeah, no, them's not gonna work up here. Well, sure they do, Nancy boldly informed him. We're VIPs. Well, that may be true, sweets, but you're not VIPs which wearing the kind of orange wristbands you need to be up here. So we skulked back to the VIP tent. Nancy rightfully scolded me for letting Jarvis scare us off. I ate more cheese and crackers while pouting. And all the while, ELO's inner circle of guests began to excitedly gather around us, each wearing a coveted orange wristband. Then a stage manager entered the tent authoritatively. All right, ladies and gentlemen, show's just about to start, so if you're wearing an orange wristband, do please follow me. The orange-clad crowd of lucky ELO SOBs began to exit the tent, and that's when I finally snapped. Come on, I said to Nancy, we're going. B but our wristbands are purple. Yeah, I know, fuck it, we're going anyway. I grabbed her hand, I did the best I could to bury us deep in the middle of that moving throng, and just as the stage manager began leading us back toward that VIP riser, I saw Jarvis scanning the crowd. And once again, he spotted my goddamn shoes. Hey, I heard him calling out as we started up the stairs, but before he could stop us, the lights went down. The crowd began to roar. The BBC Orchestra struck its first triumphant fanfare, Jeff Lynne and his band took the stage, and 50,000 fans went absolutely apeshit as if to say, yes, Trey, get on that mighty spaceship. <laughs> so that's exactly what we did. And over the next few hours, these were just a few of the highlights. For some reason I don't remember, I got a happy high five from Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> Eric Idle cracked jokes with us. And at one point, while the band was playing Evil Woman, a group of us spontaneously put our arms around each other and began to sing along. I was actually so focused on ELO that it took me a minute to recognize the raspy voice of the guy on my left. It turned out to be Brian Adams. <laughs> then another guy wedged himself into my right, only it wasn't just another guy. It was Sir Paul McCartney. <laughs> The only other person aside from Jeff Lynne that I had ever dreamed of meeting. So I impulsively put my arm around him too, and I kept right on singing at the top of my lungs, tears streaming down my cheeks, my mind joyfully blown by the fact that ELO wouldn't even exist if it weren't for the guy I was singing next to. When the song ended, Sir Paul gave me two thumbs up and said, all right, mate. Then he grabbed my wife by the hand and swiftly sashayed around her on his way to air kiss George Harrison's widow, prompting Nancy to turn to me and breathlessly exclaim, the guy who wrote, I want to hold your hand, just held my hand. <laughs> it was hands down the greatest concert I've ever seen in my life. And back in the VIP tent after the show, I was on a musical high like no other. 
when all of a sudden, the same sweet friend who had gotten us our purple wristbands in the first place walked into the tent with Mr. Blue Sky himself and immediately pointed us out, there they are! I vaguely remember her saying something like, these are my friends from LA, they came all the way to London to see you play. And then Jeff Lynn cracked this humble joke saying, we could have just come over to his house in Bel Air a lot easier. <laughs> but my heart was pounding way too hard to laugh. I tried to tell him how much his music meant to me, how he had created a soundtrack for my life, and that I'd even written one of his other hits, Strange Magic, into an episode of TV I'd just produced. In retrospect, I guess I'm really most proud of the fact that I didn't kiss his hairy mouth or openly weep over the power that three-minute pop songs can have over all of us. But now, a couple of years later, I'm holding back the tears again as I grapple with how much the concept of Out of the Blue has changed since I was a kid. Back then, yes, it was all about spaceships. But as an adult, my favorite album has taken on a much greater meaning of late. On New Year's Day of this year, Out of the Blue, my healthy, vibrant, funny wife was diagnosed with acute leukemia, and our lives turned completely upside down. Out of the blue, she was subjected to multiple rounds of chemo and spinal taps and radiation, followed by a bone marrow transplant and a wildly unexpected memory-wiping brain seizure. Out of the blue, we were surrounded by the kindness, generosity, love, prayers, and unbelievable support of family, friends, nurses, doctors, and even complete strangers on her miraculous road to remission and recovery since then. So, out of the blue, when I heard tonight's theme was out of the blue, I knew just what songs I wanted to play and replay, and exactly what stories I needed to tell and retell. For my wife, for myself, it's the mirth and the music most worth remembering. From the city of Tulsa, to the city of Los Angeles, to the city of London, the city of Hope Hospital. As a kid playing this record over and over, I never would have imagined where life would take me or all the heroes I would get to meet along the way. But as Jeff Lynn sings on track three, side two of ELO's Out of the Blue, wondrous is our great blue ship that sails around the mighty sun and joy to everyone that rides along. <laughs> 